The following sermon, entitled Forgive Us Our Debts, was preached on the morning of May 29th, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we will read verses 32 through 49, the account of Christ's crucifixion, which includes one of his prayers. And we do this in connection with our consideration of the Lord's Prayer, specifically the fifth fifth petition, as it's explained in Lord's Day 51 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So let's read God's Word in Luke 23, beginning at verse 32. This is the Word of God. And there were also two other malefactors led with Him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified Him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, This is the King of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Thy hands I commend My Spirit. And having said thus, He gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. We read God's Word to that point. It's on the basis of this passage and many others, we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 51. Lord's Day 51, which is the fifth petition? 
And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions, nor that depravity which always cleaves to us, even as we feel this evidence of Thy grace in us, that it is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive our neighbor. It's part of the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism concerning how we are to show our gratitude for our salvation, we have been making our way through the Lord's Prayer. And we've come, we come now to the fifth petition that God would forgive us of our debts. This is an important prayer exactly because on account of our sinfulness, we need to continue to make this petition on a regular basis, on a daily basis. But now because that prayer, forgive us our debts, arises out of and is really an expression of our repentance before God, this Lord's Day gives us an opportunity to talk about repentance. And the value, the profit of doing that is that there's been considerable discussion of late concerning repentance. What is it? And what place does it have with regard to the forgiveness of sins? And while we are not going to get into all the matters that pertain to the debate regarding repentance, we will touch on some of them. And our purpose is to provide clarity. Our purpose is to see what Scripture itself has to say concerning repentance and its place with respect to forgiveness. But even as we delve into that matter, even as we look at that, it may not distract us from the main overarching point that this is a petition in which we're asking God to forgive us our debts. A petition that for Jesus' sake, God will answer. So this evening, this morning, we consider Lord's Day 51 using as our theme, forgive us our debts. First, we'll look at the petition itself. Second, we'll look at the place of repentance. And then third, God's answer. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts. And by formulating this petition that way, Jesus was thereby giving us instruction concerning the nature of sin that's embedded in the petition itself when He refers to our sins as debts. What that teaches us fundamentally is that on account of our sin, we owe a debt to God. That's the whole idea of a debt. If you're in debt, that means you owe something to somebody else. You have the responsibility, the obligation to make some sort of a payment to another. That's the idea of a debt. And now, Christ takes that and applies that to our sins. We're debtors to our God. Because He is the One who having created all things and who rules over all things is both the divine lawgiver and judge. He decides what's right and wrong. He tells us how we are to live. And our sin is that we have gone against 
God's law. Our sin is any want of conformity to that law or transgression against His law. It's our failing to keep that law and our going against that law. And because we have broken His law, because we've violated His commandments, we owe a debt. We're responsible to make a payment to our God. We stand as guilty sinners before that law and the payment is death. That's the punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death. And our plight as sinners is that we have no way to pay that debt because we have nothing of ourselves that we could ever give to God. And what is worse, we only increase our debt because every day we continue to sin more and more and more so that we're, at, we're ever racking up a greater and greater debt. That's what this petition teaches us about sin. And the man crucified on the cross next to Jesus Christ understood this. The Scripture teaches us when Christ was crucified, there were two other malefactors who were crucified with Him. One on His right and one on His left. And though both of them initially were bringing railings against Jesus Christ and mocking Him, Scripture testifies that one of the two was brought to faith and repentance. And that comes out in His confession regarding His own sinfulness relative to the innocence of Jesus Christ. It's in verses 39 and following of the chapter that we read. And one of the malefactors, which were hanged, railed on Him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked Him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds." But this man hath done nothing amiss. Notice he's confessing his sin here. He's acknowledging his own sinfulness. He's not pleading his innocence. He's not making excuses. But he says he speaks of our deeds. That is, our evil deeds. And what is more, he acknowledges that the punishment he is receiving is just. That he deserves this. He says we're in the same condemnation and we indeed justly. He understood there's consequences to sin. He understood that on account of our sin, we are debtors and we deserve death. This man understood that. Is that our view of sin? Do we as a congregation recognize the filthiness, the grievousness, the odiousness of sin? Do we say with the psalmist David in Psalm 51, against Thee and Thee only have I done this evil in Thy sight? Do we like the publican in one of Jesus' parables fall down on our hands and knees when we go to confess our sin 
not daring to lift up so much as our eyes, but smiting upon our breast as we say, I am the sinner. Do we affirm with Martin Luther that we are beggars? This is true. And all that is to ask, do we recognize that on account of our sin, we are debtors before our God that we owe, that we have the responsibility to pay? That's the instruction about sin that's embedded in this petition. But now all of that said, this phrase, forgive us our debts, is not a theological statement about sin. It's a petition that God would forgive us of that sin. That's what this is about. When we make this petition our own, we're asking that God would forgive us. That is, He would pardon us. That He would grant us the remission of our sins. Or to use the language of the catechism, that He would not impute our sins. The catechism explains this petition as saying this, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood, not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions, nor that depravity which always cleaves to us. We're asking that God would not reckon our sin to our account. And we recognize this is in harmony with the whole idea of sin as debt. We're asking God, release us from the responsibility, the obligation to pay Lift up off from us that burden that is our debt that we owe. And we're asking God that really by His Word, He would communicate to our souls, to our consciousness, that He has done exactly that. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness is God by His Spirit Declaring to our souls, I've removed your sin as far as east is from the west. Forgiveness is God by His Word saying to our consciousness, I will not hold this against you. I will not allow this to affect our relationship. And that's what we're asking God for when we make this petition our own. But now to help clarify exactly what we are praying for, it's worth taking a sort of theological detour to look at other similar concepts that are related to forgiveness, but yet are distinct from forgiveness so that we have a a clear view of what exactly we're asking God for. When we pray the fifth petition, forgive us our debts, we are not praying that God would atone for our sins. That's one concept. The atonement is what Christ did at the cross. He atoned for our sins and that He satisfied God's justice against our sins by going to the cross as our substitute and bearing the punishment that we deserve for our sins. It's at the cross He made the payment, the once and for all payment for our sins. That's atonement. We're not praying for that. Nor are we praying 
that God would reconcile us to Himself. And we're not praying for that because reconciliation is an objective reality that God has accomplished once and for all. It's a change in our legal status before God. And we say that in light of Scripture. For example, in Romans 5, verse 10, we read, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. It's teaching us that we were reconciled when we were enemies. That's happened. It's an objective reality. And because we've been reconciled, we do not need to be re-reconciled again and again and again and again. So we're not asking God to reconcile us to Himself. Nor are we praying that God would justify us in the strict sense of the Word. Because strictly speaking, justification, God's verdict and declaration that we are righteous, that's a one-time thing. He makes the legal decision. You are righteous in Christ. And that's a one-time indivisible act. And we say that in light of what the canons teach us, for example, in Canons 5, verse 6, that even when Canons Head 5, Article 6, that even when we commit some enormous sin, nevertheless, we do not lose, we do not forfeit our state of justification. In other words, it's saying once we're declared righteous by God, we're always righteous before God. We never go back to being guilty before God, at least from a legal point of view. So three different concepts. Reconciliation, atonement, and justification. When we pray the fifth petition, we're not asking God for one of those things. We're asking Him for forgiveness. That's a distinct concept. It's certainly related to those three concepts we just described. Because with regard to the atonement, the atonement is the basis. It's the ground for God to forgive us. The atonement was the pain of the debt itself. And it's on the basis of that atonement that God can now declare to our souls, I release you from the responsibility to pay. So that really, forgiveness is the application of the atonement to the soul, to the consciousness of the sinner. Regarding reconciliation, Forgiveness is really the fruit of that reconciliation. Reconciliation is an objective reality, but Scripture speaks of us receiving reconciliation. That is, we receive it subjectively by faith in Christ. And regarding justification, forgiveness is really the renewed application of it to our consciousness. And we need that because though our legal status can never change, yet when we fall into sin, we do feel guilt for sin. We experience the shame on account of our sins. And because of that, we need God to declare to our souls once again, I forgive you. The verdict, that happens once. But God pronounces that verdict to us again and again and again throughout our lives. And that 
renewed application of it is forgiveness. So the other three concepts, atonement, reconciliation, justification, are really once and for all saving works of God. Forgiveness is something we're praying that God would give again and again and again because forgiveness, though it's though it was decreed in eternity, though it was merited that merited at the cross, forgiveness is fundamentally God's word in the gospel to the consciousness of a sinner, so that in our hearts and souls we hear him say to us, I forgive you. That's what we're praying for. And I hope and pray that theological detour provides some clarity. But now, the real question is, do we make that prayer our own? Because no matter how much theological clarity we have, it does us no good whatsoever if we never pray, forgive us our debts. Do you make that prayer your own, child of God? Almost certainly, every one of us utters those words with our lips. But do we truly pray that prayer from the heart? Do we make this petition with grief in our hearts on account of our sin? That is, are we truly sorry that we've offended and provoked our God by our sin? Are we brokenhearted on account of our sinfulness? Insofar as we are not, then likely that's indicative that we've come to minimize sin. That we've come to have a low view of sin. That we view it as not that big of a deal. And when that's our perspective, sin is a small matter, well, we are never going to feel the need to ask God to forgive us. And if we do utter the words, forgive us our debts, it's only ever going to be in a a generic and vague sense of the word. We're never going to ask specifically, God, forgive me of this particular sin in my life. So on the one hand, there's the danger that we come to minimize sin. And that then prevents us from praying this prayer. But now there's another danger. The other danger is that we come to have a low view of God's mercy. That is, we can have a proper understanding of our sin, but we lose sight of His mercy so that we begin to think, There's no way He could forgive me. We're troubled by our sin. We're burdened on account of our sin. But we think to ourselves, there's no way He would receive me. There's no way He will forgive me again. And you understand how that too, if we have a low view of His mercy, will result in our prayer lives drying up. Because if we don't think 
that forgiveness is possible. We're never going to go to God asking Him, forgive us our debts. And it's in light of these dangers that it's a fair question to ask. Do we make this petition our own? Forgive us our debts. For the reality is we will only pray this when by faith we understand our sinfulness and when by faith we apprehend that there's mercy to be found. We make this petition our own when by faith we understand our sinfulness. When like the prodigal son, we come to ourselves. We come to our senses regarding sin and we recognize the grievousness, the the filthiness of my sin, that by my sin I have provoked my God. And to that end, we see how precious the law of our God is for His people. Yes, the law. Because it's the law that says as Nathan to David, thou art the man. It's the law that exposes our sinfulness. That's one of the main purposes, the main uses of the law to help us to see our sin. And so we need the law to help us to see the seriousness of our sin. But we need more than the law. We need the Gospel. We need the good news that there is mercy to be found. Because so long as we have only the law, well, that will only ever leave us empty. The law can only expose our spiritual poverty. The law can only ever bring us low. And insofar as I have only the law, that I'm looking only at what God requires, I am never going to go to Him in prayer. If I have only the law, I'm going to turn and run away. If we have only the law, we are going to be like the Israelites as they stood at Mount Sinai. We don't want to go close to that mountain. That's why we need the Gospel. The good news of salvation in Christ that there's mercy to be found. Because it's only when we apprehend by faith, it's only when we recognize there is forgiveness because our God is a merciful God that we then go to Him making this petition our own. It's the promise of the Gospel that drives us to make this prayer. The promise as it's recorded in Joel 2, verse 13. And rend your hearts and not your garments and turn to the Lord your God for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth Him of the evil. It's the promise of Isaiah 55, verse 7 that leads us to pray, forgive us our debts. Isaiah 55, verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and He will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. So let us make this prayer our own. Let us go to God making this petition out of a true sorrow over our sin, at the same time trusting that God is merciful. Which is really to say, let's go to God in prayer in true repentance. 
Because what we've been just what we have just described is really repentance. You see, repentance does have an important place with regard to this petition, the fifth petition. Now, if we're going to understand the place of repentance, we first have to understand what is repentance. To state it negatively, repentance is not fundamentally love for God. That is how those who have left our denomination are defining repentance. One man wrote, quote, in its essence, repentance is love for God, end quote. But such a definition does not comport with the teaching of Scripture. And now to be fair, in Reformed theology, there has often been a distinction between repentance in the broad sense of the word and repentance in the narrow sense of the word. And repentance in the broad sense of the word does include love for God. But even then, saying repentance is love for God is going too far. It's included in the broad sense of the word. But that's the broad understanding. We're interested in the narrow sense of the word. What repentance is in its essence and most fundamentally. And it's not love for God. That definition of repentance runs entirely contrary to Scripture. If you want evidence for that, try plugging that into different verses that speak of repentance. Let's give one example. Acts 3, verse 19. We read, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. And the idea is for the purpose that your sins may be blotted out. Take their definition of repentance, put it in there, and what do you have? Love God that your sins may be blotted out. Love God for the purpose of having your sins forgiven. That's not the call of the Gospel. That's a distortion of the Gospel. It's theologically dangerous to say repentance is fundamentally love for God. So what then is repentance? What's the proper positive understanding? Repentance, in the narrow sense of the word, is the believer's sorrowful turn from sin unto God in seeking remission. And as one professor in our seminary pointed out, that's really how the confessions themselves define repentance. If we go to the Canons of Dort, Head 5, Article 7, we see that's how it's describing, defining repentance. Head 5, Article 7, we read this. And this has to do with God preserving us in our salvation. For in the first place, in these falls, He preserves in them the incorruptible seed of regeneration from perishing or being totally lost. And again, by His Word and Spirit, certainly, and effectually renews them to repentance. To, and now it's elaborating on that, to a sincere and godly sorrow for their sins that they may seek and obtain remission in the blood of the Mediator. There's two parts to that. On the one hand, repentance is our sorrow for sin. Our sincere and godly sorrow. Not just because of the consequences of sin. Not just because I got caught in my sin. 
but for the sin itself. The fact that I've offended my God. Sorrow for sin. But then in sorrow, seeking forgiveness. It's a sincere and godly sorrow for their sins that they may seek and obtain the remission in the blood of the Mediator. And it's in light of this that we say repentance is the Spirit-worked activity of the believer whereby he is sorry for his sins and in that sorrow turns to God seeking remission, forgiveness for that sin. That's true repentance. And now true repentance comes to expression. It manifests itself in the praying of the fifth petition. For when we are truly sorry for our sins, and at the same time trust that there is forgiveness, that there is mercy, the child of God cannot but pray, forgive me my debts. You see, true repentance always leads to the praying of this prayer. The two are really inseparably connected. They always go together. And it's for that reason why it's entirely appropriate to use this petition to talk about repentance and the place of repentance as it relates to the forgiveness of sins. So now that we have a clear understanding, hopefully, of what is repentance, now we have to relate that to the whole concept of forgiveness. And in relating this concept, there are two ditches. We have to avoid two errors on either side of the truth of God's Word. On the one hand, there is the error of denying the necessity of repentance. And this is another one of the theological errors of those who have left our denomination to start the Reformed Protestant churches. They have denied the necessity of repentance. For they deny vehemently that God works in us to repent and then we confess our sin and only then does He forgive us of our sins. They deny that and thus deny the necessity of repentance. For example, one man has written, quote, repentance has no bearing whatsoever on man's remission of sins, end quote. Another, quote, this is the Gospel of the Reformed Protestant Church. The sinner has forgiveness without repenting. End quote. Now let's back up and remind ourselves of, what we, of that theological detour that we took in the first point. If either of these statements was about atonement or reconciliation or justification in the strict sense of the word, we would say, Amen. It's true. Our repentance has no bearing on the atonement. It's true that God reconciles us without repentance. But these are not statements about atonement, reconciliation, or justification. They're statements about forgiveness. And they're saying there's no connection between forgiveness and repentance. And such a teaching is contrary to Scripture. Because Scripture itself takes repentance and forgiveness and joins them together. It does so, for example, in Proverbs 28, verse 
13. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. That is, he who refuses to repent. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. In other words, he who repents of his sin shall have mercy. The mercy of forgiveness. Luke 13, verse 3. Except ye repent, ye shall also ye shall all likewise perish. It's saying without repentance, we will perish. They're joined together. Acts 3, verse 19, we read this already. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. It's saying that we repent for the purpose of having our sins forgiven. One more, 1 John 1, 8-9, if we confess our sins, and again, repentance gives rise to confession we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These passages of Scripture, and there are others, are taking repentance and forgiveness and saying these two are related. They go together. And it's on the basis of this that we affirm what the Westminster Confession of Faith says when it says repentance is of is, quote, of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. End quote. So we must avoid the one ditch of saying repentance is not necessary. But there's another ditch. And that's the ditch of making repentance something we must do in order to be forgiven. That is, turning it into a condition. We're just quoted from the Westminster Confession of Faith, but we can quote it from the end of that paragraph. The beginning of that paragraph rightly says, although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ. It's rightly teaching that repentance is not the ground. It's not the basis. It's not the reason why God forgives us. Our repentance in no way earns forgiveness. Nor is repentance a condition that we must fulfill in order for God to forgive us. And by the term condition, we mean something we must do. And that act is And God's grace is now dependent on me performing that thing so that His grace becomes contingent on some work or some activity of the believer. That's the proper understanding of a condition. And we're saying repentance is not that. Forgiveness does not depend. It's not contingent on whether or not we repent. Nor is our repentance even the instrument whereby we receive forgiveness. Studying for this sermon, I read a helpful article that was against this whole idea of conditional forgiveness, that it's conditioned on our repentance. But though that aspect of the article was good and helpful, the author still confused matters in that he turned our repentance into an instrument whereby we receive forgiveness. It's not that. And all of this is to say that even as we avoid the one ditch of saying repentance is not necessary at all, we must not back into the other. 
That is, we must not overreact to the errors that we see others making. As a congregation and as a denomination, we must not turn repentance into something that it's not. Our forgiveness does not hinge on our repentance. But if it's necessary, and it's not a condition, then what is the relationship? How do we bring these two together? Well, to put it positively, and this is language we're familiar with, I trust, God forgives us in the way of repentance. What do we mean by that? When we use that expression in the way of, we are saying God Himself has joined these two things together. Forgiveness and repentance. They're connected. They're linked together. And we've already shown that from Scripture. And that God forgives in the way of, on the path of repentance means this. God by His Spirit works repentance in my heart. Which then leads the believer to cry out, Father, forgive me. Which prayer God then answers. That's forgiveness on the path of, in the way of repentance. God works it in my heart by His Spirit. Because He worked it in my heart, I now actively repent. I cry out, God, forgive me. And then having prayed that prayer, God gives the answer. To use the words of one of the professors of our seminary, quote, repentance is the necessary way in which or the necessary path along which God in His sovereign covenant love is pleased to conduct us unto the personal experience of His pardon. And this teaching is not new. Herman Hooksema in his explanation of this Lord's Day said, quote, only in the way of repentance and confession can we obtain forgiveness from God. End quote. And even Hooksema was not being novel. For example, Herman Bovink wrote many years before that, quote, Thus, confession and prayer are the way by which God again arouses and reinforces this consciousness of forgiveness. End quote. God forgives us in the way of repentance. But now it's one thing to say that, it's another to live that. Are you sorry for your sin? Are you truly repentant on account of your sins? May God work in us by His Spirit. That is, may He give us repentance to use the language of Scripture. May He work in us the willing and the doing so that we in turn actively repent of our sins and seek forgiveness. Now, when such a prayer arises from our hearts, the Gospel promise is that God will answer that prayer. God's answer is that He will forgive us and that He will do so for Jesus' sake. 
It's the emphasis of the catechism when it explains the fifth petition. Which is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is, be pleased. And you'll notice it doesn't go right to the verb. Not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions. But before it ever gives gets to the the main verb, it says be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood. Because that's the basis for God to answer this prayer. God forgives because Jesus paid the debt. Or to put it differently, God saves and forgives because Christ did not save Himself. Have you ever noticed as you've read the account of Christ's crucifixion how that the Gospel is embedded in the very taunts that were being thrown at Jesus Christ as He hung there on the cross? Three different groups of people all told them, why don't you just save yourself? First, it was the rulers. Verse 35, and the people stood beholding and the rulers also with them derided Him saying, He saved others. Let Him save Himself if He be the Christ, the chosen of God. And then the soldiers chimed in. Verse 36 and 7, And the soldiers also mocked Him coming to Him and offering Him vinegar and saying, If thou be the King of the Jews, save thyself. And then the one malefactor. Verse 39, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on Him saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Now we all recognize their logic. This man cannot possibly be the Messiah. Because though he could save others, he cannot save himself. If he were the Messiah, he would save himself. He would come down from the cross. That's clear logic in their minds. But they have it all backwards. It's exactly because he did not save Himself. That He thereby saved others. It's because He refused to come down that we might have forgiveness. He did not save Himself. Instead, He paid the debt that we owe for our sins. That's why He stays because he knows he must drink the cup. And that's exactly what he did during those three hours of darkness. Verse 44, and it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. For three hours, God turned out the lights as a show of his judgment against sin. He poured out His wrath upon our Savior. So that Christ took the punishment. He made the payment. 
He did not save Himself. Because it was only by not saving Himself that He could ever save us. And now it's on the basis of that atoning work that when we pray to God, forgive us our debts, God answers us, I forgive you. And what is more, we have Christ Himself praying this on our behalf. Not only did Christ atone for our sins, pay the debt, but Christ Himself now makes this petition His own. He does indeed pray this petition not for His own sins, to be clear. Here we see a difference between this petition and the others that we've gone through. In our study of the Lord's Prayer, we've been trying to understand these various petitions by looking at Christ Himself making these petitions His own or praying something that's similar in form and meaning to these petitions. And for the previous four, we could find clear examples of Christ making those petitions His own. But you will not find Christ praying this petition for Himself because He's the sinless One. In just that short time on the cross, the penitent malefactor could recognize this, that He had done nothing wrong, that He was innocent. And what a truth that man was speaking. Christ does not need to pray this for Himself, but He does still make this petition. And the proof is here in this chapter. Verse 34, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The them there is the very men nailing Him to the cross. What a thing to pray. About the soldiers who are crucifying you that very moment. And ultimately, Christ is praying this for the centurion. Who after Christ has given up the ghost is going to confess, truly this was a righteous man. Truly this was the Son of God. Now the main point is that Jesus prays this on our behalf. He prays for His people sitting here this morning. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it's true, we do not know what we do in the sense that we will never comprehend the gravity, the seriousness of our sin. But though that is the case, we have an advocate. Christ Himself makes intercession on our behalf and He prays, forgive them. And because He makes this petition on the basis of His own saving death, this is a prayer our Father will answer, which means in turn, He will answer our prayers too. And He will answer us even as He answered that penitent malefactor. 
As we noticed earlier, one of these two men is brought to faith and repentance. And by faith, he makes the request that he does in verse 42. He said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now it's true, he does not explicitly ask for the forgiveness of sins, but it's clearly implied. And how does Christ answer him? Verse 43, Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And in that response is embedded the message, I forgive you. I forgive you of your sins. And I view you as righteous. On account of my own righteousness being imputed to you, and because of that, You will be with Me in paradise. And that's His answer to us. You will be with Me in paradise because I have forgiven your sin. You are righteous in Jesus Christ and therefore you have the right to eternal life. Do you believe that, child of God? Do you believe that all of your sins are for the sake of Christ's blood forgiven? Not just the sins of thought and desire, but the sins of word and deed. Not just the sins of omission, but the sins of commission. Not just the presumptuous sins, but also the secret sins. On the basis of Christ's saving work, you may be sure that when you pray in true faith, Father, forgive us our debts, His answer to you is this. For the sake of Christ's blood, my child, I forgive you. Amen. Father, what a glorious Gospel we have in Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for His atoning, reconciling work that He performed at Calvary. We thank Thee that on the basis of that work Thou hast declared in the courts of heaven that we are righteous. Thou hast rendered that verdict. And now, Thou dost communicate that to our hearts and souls by Thy Spirit and by Thy Word so that we hear in our souls those blessed words, I forgive You. Father, be pleased once again to declare to our souls that message. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.